Hi everyone, welcome back to Distorted Footprints, a critical refugee studies podcast. We are Zia Wang, Alia Evangelista, and Kankir Shroth. In this episode, we are going to talk about the loss of homes for refugees during the past refugee crisis. As Van Nam mentioned, refugeehood marks a form of subjectivity, an experience, consciousness, and knowledge that lingers even when the legal destination is lifted, or one that might be present before the destination comes into effect. Based on the political context of the Pakistan refugee crisis and our interview with Professor Katami, we have learned that the loss of homes for refugees not only leads to temporary exile, but also creates the refugeehood, the extension of the refugee experience. A video from Audrey Wilson Center introduces a Pakistan refugee crisis. In this video, Karen, who worked as a Commissioner General in the UNRWA, discusses the historical background of the Pakistan refugee crisis. So, if I start at the beginning, in the space of 11 months, from 1947 to 1948, some 800,000 Palestinians were compelled to abandon their homes and livelihoods for the safety of refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, and the West Bank. In the fierce conflict that followed the establishment of the State of Israel, many Palestinians experienced violent events, while others heard of tragic happenings in nearby villages. All of them fled in fear and desperation, compelled by the survival instinct and motivated motivated by a desire to weather what they believed was but a temporary storm. We spoke with UCLA Asian American Studies professor Lubna Katami about Palestinian culture. And personal experiences during displacement and occupation. Professor Kratami currently teaches a course at UCLA entitled "Palestine in a Comparative Ethnic Studies Framework." As a Jordanian and Palestinian person, Professor Kratami is an outspoken scholar, activist, and educator. Our conversation explored topics of displacement, exile, militarization, and refugee experiences. Professor Katami will now be joining us today on the podcast. Do you mind to share some personal or family experience about displacement and how this has shaped your sense of identity? Yeah, that's a really great question.、Um, you know, my father is Jordanian and my mother is Palestinian. My mother's family、um, lived in Palestine. Until、uh, the 1948 Palestinian Nakba, that's an event in history、um, whereby there was the creation of the Israeli state that resulted in the displacement of about 800,000 Palestinians who t- were turned into basically permanent refugees. So my grandparents、um, were displaced、um, then in May of 1948、uh, and sought refuge in Lebanon. Um, however, Lebanon, you know, the opportunities for refugees were really restricted.、Um, so, after about eight months there, they moved to Jordan, where most Palestinian refugees had also ended up. And、um, you know, they they sometimes describe themselves, my mom's family, as like the fortunate refugees. <laughs> Although I don't know if that's ever possible. From being displaced from your homeland, but they describe themselves as the fortunate refugees because my grandmother put in an application to the United Nations to 
win like a lottery house, basically. It was like these giveaway homes. They were not fancy homes. They were just very tiny, tiny like um, apartments really. Um, but it was still preferred over living in the cloth tents that later became concrete refugee camps. And so my family was fortunate enough to be in one of those homes. So they, my mom was born a year after the Nakba and grew up in this Palestinian gathering, this neighborhood of refugees in Jordan uh, and lived her, uh, most of her adult, uh, her childhood and um, teenage life there. The situation in Jordan, um, you know, the Palestinian revolution really started in the 1960s with um, the formation and development of the guerrilla organizations. These were organizations that were committed to guerrilla armed struggle um, and who really believed in um, the necessity for resistance in order to secure their right to return to Palestine because they were living in such devastating um, chronic you know, conditions in Jordan as refugees, as stateless people. Um, and it had been about 20 years that had passed between 48 and 68, um, but, you know, before the revolution really sort of started to foment um, more powerfully. Um, Palestinian refugees at that time, including my family, they were growing very um, disenchanted and um, kind of experiencing a lot of political despair in the idea that the Arab government surrounding Palestine, you know, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq were unable to secure a durable solution for the theft of Palestine, for the refugees who, you know, were their bones were still aching to return to their homes. Um, and my family, just like every other Palestinian refugee family, when they left in 48, they thought, We've got to go now because of the, the the violence that's happening that's driving us out. But when the situation settles down, maybe it'll be a couple of weeks, maybe it'll be a few months, we will return. And unfortunately, that never happened. It's now seven decades later. They still haven't been able to return. So, you know, by the late 1960s in Jordan, as the revolution was developing, um, there grew an increased tension between the Palestinian revolution's leadership and the Jordanian kingdom, um, the, the monarchy of um, King Hussein. <clears throat> and so what that resulted in by 1970 is an event known as Black September, whereby the Jordanian kingdom um, executed a massacre against many Palestinians and also drove out the leadership of the revolution to other countries. And so in that moment, um, it was very unsafe to stay in Jordan, and my family um, really was desiring to um, to leave. I mean, my grandfather was deeply a part of the revolution, and he really believed that the revolution would secure his return to Palestine. And so I think that moment was really sad for him because um, he realized that not only had he not been able to secure a return to Palestine, but that they were about to embark on a second form of displacement, you know, um, just shortly after 20 years after their original refugeehood. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, so now our second question. Um, in an interview with Palestine in America, you had mentioned that you um, have been banned from Palestine. So we wanted to ask how has being exiled impacted your connection to your culture? So, you know, the initial ban from Palestine 
started with my family in 48, right? They were forcibly displaced and prohibited from returning. Um, my grandfather, um, rest his soul, in the early 1990s, before the Oslo Accords, um, the, that's the peace agreement between the Palestinian leadership and Israel, you know, he had finally had American citizenship and he was able to return to Palestine for a visit. Um, and so was my mother. And so, you know, but they're not allowed to live there. They're not allowed to be there as Palestinians. It's, they were only able to access that place as an American citizen. So it just kind of shows you who has access to a place from which Palestinians are denied. Palestinian refugees in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and, and so forth, they've never seen Palestine since 1948. Um, so, you know, the ascendancy toward the power and privilege that a blue American passport gives you allowed them to return for a visit to Palestine. And so that was part of the way that I was able to return to Palestine. I was able to return in 2006. I studied in Palestine for a while and I was able to return again in 2007 and to be able to reconnect with my mom's family who stayed in Palestine, um, you know, um, who I had never met because there's all these different ways that forced displacement separates families. So I'd never had a chance to meet them. I was finally able to meet them, spend time with them and so forth. Um, however, when I went returned back again in 2015, uh, I, you know, the long 10 hours at the border, the interrogation, that's something I was prepared for because that's always the case when any Palestinian, whether you're an American citizen or not, traveling to the place um, encounters like really dehumanizing forms of interrogation um, by the Israeli border control um, agents. Yes, thank you. And we also wanted to ask about your other thoughts about um, how militarization has impacted the Palestinian community and culture. Mm. Well, I think the simple, I mean, I think the simple answer to it is that it's introduced to us um, emotional, theoretical, spiritual, physiological, cultural, epistemological, like intellectual practices of something we call samud, which is loosely translated into the idea of being steadfast. Um, and so what I mean by that is steadfast means you're digging your heels in the ground, right? You are refusing to be beat down. And so this idea of samud is really major in Palestinian political literature, in Palestinian um, literary analysis and in, in culture and art and food and music, it's always a reoccurring theme for all Palestinian communities, not just those displaced in 48, but for those even occupied in the West Bank and Gaza today also. So for example, Samud um, is theorized in the prisoner context that prisoners under really awful physical forms of sexual and physical torture, um, how do they gain the inner passion and strength to refuse to comply with the interrogators, right? When the interrogators are you know, breaking your bones, literally, how do you gain the inner strength to refuse to give a false confession? How do you give the inner strength to refuse to give names to, a, to, to a, someone who's torturing you? In the case of refugees, right? Um, for those who are living in the camps, how do we teach our young to dig their heels into the ground seven decades later and keep demanding the right of return when refugeehood for them has meant abject poverty, 
living in chronic conditions of camps, you know, 30 people to a house, right? Um, not having access to health and education and not having a passport and feeling trapped, right? How do you dig your heels into the ground and say, we are Palestinian refugees and we're not going anywhere other than back to Palestine, right? Um, in the case of Palestinians in America, right? Young Palestinians born and raised into a higher level of privilege than our counterparts. Um, when there are websites created that are defaming you, websites like Canary Mission for young activists on campuses, the, you know, when there are news reports that are calling you terrorists, when there are your own campus administrators are saying that your advocacy for Palestine equates to anti-Semitism, right? How do you dig your heels into the ground and gain the samud, the steadfastness to keep speaking out anyway, right? When it could threaten you, um, threaten to get you, you know, disqualified from a job or fired from a job or in trouble with your campus administrators and so forth. Like, how do you keep speaking up um, even though the whole world feels like it's stacked up against you and there's so much silencing and bullying that happens to silence people, you know? So I think this idea of samud, of steadfastness, really emerges from militarization in Palestine and it evokes itself in all different facets of Palestinian life, whether that's the political sphere or the cultural forms of resistance. Thank you so much. And uh, also in this class, we learned that many refugees are forced to forget their culture, language, and experience because of political oppression. So uh, we are curious about, is there any way for you to preserve, honor, or uphold the Palestinian culture in your daily life? Yeah. That's a great question. Well, I, I do think that it's important to separate the question here of Palestinian refugees who live in Arab countries versus Palestinian exiles who live scattered across the world. There is a lot of repression of Palestinian political resistance in Arab countries, specifically for refugees, right? Um, there's a lot of surveillance. There's a lot of, uh, you know, historically, there's been a lot of assassinations and imprisonments of Palestinian refugees who've been politically mobilizing. But I think because, especially in the case in Lebanon, where Palestinian refugees still live confined within these refugee camps, um, the Palestinian identity, the knowledge of Palestinian history, Palestinian culture, Palestinian social and cultural um, descriptions of one's experience still lives very powerfully, right? Because people are born in that condition of crisis very well aware that the reason they live in that crisis is because they're Palestinian, because there was this event called the Nakba. And so that really fosters um, a circulation of Palestinian literature and culture and ideas that refugees feel very, very attached to. Um, for many of us who live in the far diaspora, a lot of our families come from those conditions, right? Where there's this very powerful attachment to the struggle, to our culture, to our identity, because we're forcibly removed from it. This is the case for any community. Anytime someone has had something forcibly stripped from them, they will latch onto it in a way that is unparalleled, right? Because you know that you don't have it because it was taken from you. And that is, um, that is just true for any community, I think, right? So Palestinians have, especially of the older generation, they really maintained a lot of their attachment to their homeland, to their culture, to their identity, and reproduced it in exile through creating village and um, associations and cultural festivals and um, the creation of so much literature and so much different cultural practices in diaspora 
the creation of um, political movements in diaspora, Palestinian political movements to continue advocating for justice and freedom in Palestine, right? For a new generation, they're of course confronted with the fact that, you know, for many of them, they're probably born and raised in the States. Um, if we're talking about the community in the US, born and raised in the United States, um, who might not speak Arabic very well, who maybe never had a chance to visit Palestine or don't have family there, who maybe um, struggle with learning how to, you know, to, to find out about their Palestinian history. Maybe their parents have experienced a lot of trauma and don't actually pass on oral history narratives, right? Um, and then also confronted with such vast forms of repression around Palestinian identity and aspirations in the US. So every which way you turn in classroom teaching pedagogy, in on social media, the presidential debates in every election, you just kind of have to wit stand by and witness the constant dehumanization of your people or erasure of your people. So I think that that environment really threatens the ability to keep Palestinian social, political, and cultural life um, alive. But I also think that repression is in part what fuels people to keep it alive. As Professor Katami mentions, Palestinians embody Samud to be steadfast. Even as displaced Palestinians experience a loss of home, they cultivate communities and foster personal connections with their culture. Through occupation, displacement, militarization, and exile, Palestinians remain steadfast. The right to return must be recognized and standing in solidarity is vital. This podcast episode forwards a critical refugee studies framework through its focus on displaced Palestinians and aim to discuss their experiences beyond militarization. Be sure to listen to the next Distorted Footprint episode, which highlights the Hmong community with a focus on community building and identity beyond nation-state borders.